So I think a scientific exchange amongst China and the U.S., exchange of information, working together on problems which are very similar. And both countries could become a role model in working together and in improving and restoring nature. Back in November 2021, at the climate meetings in Glasgow, the U.S. and China signed a joint climate declaration to cooperate and reduce greenhouse gas emissions in all sectors. China and the United States are the world's two biggest polluters, and their future actions critical in the fight against climate change. So the two countries' joint declaration was welcomed at the COP26 summit Wednesday. The United States and China have no shortage of differences, but on climate, on climate, cooperation is the only way to get this job done. In the area of climate change, there is more agreement between China and the U.S. than divergence, making it an area with huge potential. For our cooperation. Their joint climate declaration also included, for the first time, the goal of reducing greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture.、Hmm, that would make sense, actually. The global food system generates nearly a third of the world's greenhouse emissions. And since the U.S. and China together consume and produce a majority of the world's food. We need them to collaborate and speed up solutions to global warming. Now, the U.S. President Joe Biden and his Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping have agreed to renew communication on climate, debt relief, and other issues. Now, that could energize the lackluster negotiations at the COP27 climate summit in Egypt. Luckily, during November last year, the U.S. and China again committed to working together to fight climate change. Despite these commitments, though, with COVID and bilateral tensions, scientific exchanges between the two countries have dropped off, making collaborative research challenging at best. So, in this podcast series, we went looking for solutions in the U.S. and in China to this difficult task of reducing greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture. We chose three themes: soil, rice, and dairy. With the hope that this can encourage further research cooperation between the two countries, because we have a saying in Mandarin, 三个臭皮匠胜过一个诸葛亮 which basically means two hats are better than one. We need U.S. and China to collaborate. Remember, thirty percent of global greenhouse gas emissions are from food systems. If we want to respond quickly to the global warming crisis, U.S. and China must act now. Welcome to the first episode of our series, Cool Agriculture. I'm Marcy Chet Long, and I'm Shermaine Lee. In our first episode, we want to look at soil, where our food begins, and because it's an often overlooked climate fighter that is much more than what meets the eye.
you cannot take away from nature all the time you must put it back in that respect soil is like a bank account just like from bank you cannot withdraw more money than you put in similarly from soil you cannot keep taking it always and not putting it back soil it's what's described as earth's living skin it purifies our water reduces flooding regulates the atmosphere and very importantly it captures and stores most of the terrestrial carbon in the world carbon stored in soil is two or three times more than the carbon stored in our atmosphere and soil produces over 90 percent of our food on the table it is inseparable from our food system as well as a hot button issue now food security this means soil health and food production are deeply intertwined and to ensure food security soil becomes critical and you know the shocking thing is that 75 percent of soil is already degraded because of what we humans do and climate change is making it worse this means soil is having a diet problem we've been feeding it from the wrong menu living biomass of organism in the soil of a very healthy soil should be five ton per hectare and many soil where the farmers take away everything and try to replace only by chemical fertilizer there's no biomass this is dr ratan law a soil science professor at the ohio state university he's talking to us from his office dr law is a strong advocate of sustainable soil management and it is an award-winning food and soil expert. Just now, he was talking about soil's hunger for organism biomass. So soil is not having ample biodiversity. Soil does not have activity and species diversity to make soil very healthy. And that is the problem. One of the many reasons for this lack of organic biomass in soil is the overuse of chemical fertilizers. And it also turns out that when we apply too much chemical fertilizer to soil, a potent greenhouse gas is emitted called nitrous oxide. Oddly, the production of chemical fertilizer has been called one of the greatest inventions of the 20th century. So to understand how we can reduce nitrous oxide, this potent greenhouse gas from agriculture, now that we're so dependent on chemical fertilizers, well, we have to start at the beginning. And so about a hundred years ago, two German chemists came up with a way to transfer nitrogen from the air into fertilizer, which is now called the Haber-Bosch process. These two German chemists won the Nobel Prize for this invention. It was much more effective than manure and compost and increasing yield, so farmers started using these fertilizers extensively from the 60s onward. Crop productivity increased so dramatically that Germans called the invention Brot aus Luft, or bread from air. Right now, half of the world's population is fed by food grown from these chemical fertilizers. Farmers replaced parts of the organic nutrient diet for soil with the nitrogen compounds found in chemical fertilizers, which produced a higher yield. So the good news is that the higher yield meant we didn't need to use as much land for agricultural production. The bad news was that while the short-term yields increased, 
In the long run, we were creating a crisis in soil degradation. Remember what Dr. Lal said? You can't steal from nature continuously. You must replace what you take. It became kind of conventional that we can uh, replace the nutrients we harvest by chemical fertilizers. And in theory, it is correct that we could do that. And fertilizers certainly facilitated increase in crop production. But soil also requires organic matter content. We must maintain soil organic matter content in the root zone so that the organism which makes soil healthy, a living entity, have enough to eat. If they starve and uh, they die because there is no organic matter content and you put chemical fertilizer, then the, its effectiveness is not very good. There is no such thing as a free lunch. Everything has a price. And sometimes the price is not monetary, it's ecological. And this is where Mother Nature does not forgive you. Only some of the nitrogen in these chemical fertilizers actually ends up in the crops. The remaining bulk goes up to the air and down into the water. For instance, excess nitrogen from the soil generates a greenhouse gas called nitrous oxide, and that can stay in the atmosphere for over 100 years. It can warm the planet 300 times more than carbon dioxide. So nitrous oxide is an often overlooked greenhouse gas, and over 70% of it comes from agriculture. Hmm, and not just that, but the excessive use of chemical fertilizers means nitrogen runs off and pollutes drinking water, leading to blooms of algae in lakes that contaminates water and kills fish. Both the U.S. and China started using more and more nitrogen fertilizers since the 1960s. In 1976, both were using about 50 kg of fertilizer per hectare of farmland. The U.S. increased their usage up to 70 kg and since 2012 has stayed at that level. And the reason for the flattening of fertilizer use in the U.S. is really interesting. So it really kind of was born out of COVID and the disruption to the supply chain and now sort of that mini economic disruption that kind of happened as a result that we're still dealing with. So the fertilizer prices jumped exponentially um, over the last couple of years. So farmers are very concerned about not applying more than they need because there's a real cost problem to that right now. This is Jessica D'Ambrosio, the Nature Conservancy's Ohio Agriculture Project Director. She's been promoting the use of a so-called 4R nutrient principle to grow crops. The first of those 4Rs is putting the right amount of fertilizers in cropland. So with the higher prices during COVID, Jessica said farmers in the U.S. over the last decade have learned how to better optimize the amount of fertilizers they're using. Right. So it may be that some of those data might reflect that we're becoming more efficient in where we put that fertilizer, uh, not necessarily always using less and always using less. So there are places we know, even just in Ohio, where some areas are fertilizer deficient. It's not enough in the soil for lots of different reasons to grow a crop yield that would be maximally sustainable. And what's fascinating is that the Nature Conservancy's 4-Hour Initiative was born out of an algae bloom 
that was being caused by water pollution from the overuse of chemical fertilizers. We had a harmful algal bloom back in 2014 that affected drinking water supply for the city of Toledo and、uh, made national headlines,、uh, shut the water down for an entire city, half a million residents. For the second straight day, 400,000 people in and near Toledo, Ohio, are being told not to drink the tap water. Reducing the fertilizers for us is more of a the bigger driver is protecting the water quality and reducing the harmful algal blooms in our waterways than it is the soil health component. And Jessica's team estimates that about 40% of farms in the Western Lake Erie Basin in Ohio. Implementing the four-hour principles, it is a really nice way to connect the dots between productive, protective agriculture, economically beneficial agriculture, and protecting environmental and natural resources, both through water quality protection, but also through reduction of greenhouse gases. In China, water pollution from fertilizer runoff has also been a pickle. In the southern Chinese city of Dali, the water in the usually picturesque freshwater lake called Erhai has become murky and icky because of the bloom of algae. And one of the pollution sources was found out to be, you guessed it, chemical fertilizers. Farmers in a nearby county grow single clove garlic. This kind of garlic can be sold for a high price, and was seen as a promising way for the country's residents. To be lifted out of poverty, but this overapplication of fertilizers led to an almost catastrophic algae bloom on Lake Erhai that has made the city choose between environmental protection and economic development. This is what Kevin Mo also saw several years ago. Kevin is the principal of Innovative Green Development Project, which is a climate consultancy. He told us that extensive application of chemical fertilizers was prevalent in China to boost yields, despite the environmental cost. This excessive application of the chemical fertilizers not just caused serious problem to environment deterioration, but also degrade the soil quality and also cause a problem, a、uh, cause pollution to the water system. So, why did Chinese farmers use such a high amount of chemical fertilizers? China has a large population. We say 1.4 billion people. So, China is the largest, world's largest food producer, meat consumer, and soybean importer. So,、um, one thing is very notable is China feeds 18% of the world's population. With just nine percent of the world's arable land and six percent of world's freshwater resources, so this is a truly achievement for China. Food security has always been China's number one priority. The use of chemical fertilizer is kind of like in line with Chinese economic development. I think、uh, before 1970s. Actually, you don't see much chemical fertilizers are applied in the Chinese agriculture sector. But with China's reform and the opening up、uh, policies in 1980s, and China actually the economic development just moved rapidly. 
Alongside the economic boom in the 90s, Chinese farmers started using more and more chemical fertilizer, buoyed by the belief that the more they used, the higher the yield. And chemical fertilizers were cheaper than their organic counterparts. The overuse of chemical fertilizers led to the farmer's soil slowly degrading and, unbeknownst at the time, greenhouse gas emissions going up. China pledged to become carbon neutral by 2060 and reach a carbon peak by 2030. Agriculture is a big part of it. Kevin estimated, though, without intervention, China's greenhouse gas emissions are going to continue to grow. That means China has to reduce the use of chemical fertilizers in order to improve the soil quality, improve the water quality, and improve the environment. And the Chinese government already realized the importance of that and has been issuing several document uh, policies, actually, to try to control that. In 2015, China put a new policy called the Action Plan for the Zero Increase of Fertilizer Use. So while nitrogen fertilizer use peaked in 2014, it then went down to below 200 kilogram in 2019. Kevin said that reducing the amount of chemical fertilizer is the first step of the policy. And two is build a long-term mechanism for replacing chemical fertilizers with organic fertilizers for fruits, vegetables, tea, and provide subsidies for purchase and use of organic fertilizers. That actually are included in Chinese like five-year plans. So what are the benefits to using organic fertilizers that Chinese farmers are using? Organic fertilizers are processed in a way that can uh, control the emission of the methane and a lot of non-CO2 emissions, such as nitrile oxide. And so when it's applied to the farmlands, it releases much less uh, nitrile oxide than the chemical fertilizers. And what are they made of in China? They come from manure management program, so from manure, from uh, some like food waste, they they make treatment on that, and then convert it to organic fertilizer. Usually they are more expensive than chemical fertilizers, so government have to provide subsidies to farmers in order to encourage them to use organic fertilizers to replace the chemical fertilizers. And we talked with Dr. Feng Mingsheng, a professor of soil science at the Chinese Agricultural University in Beijing, who echoed Kevin's comments and warned us to limit the use of chemical fertilizers. Our agriculture is dependent on chemical fertilizers. If not, we can't feed so many people here, right? But it needs to be optimized and used reasonably so its negative impact are limited to what society can manage. So, like in the U.S. with the 4R initiative, it's all about founding the optimum balance of chemical fertilizers in soil. We've talked a lot about reducing chemical fertilizers as a means to lower nitrous oxide emissions. But there's also stored carbon in soil as well. In fact, carbon stored in soil is two to three times more than the carbon stored in the atmosphere. So we asked Professor Fan, how does soil provide a carbon sink 
by using organic rather than chemical fertilizers. There are two ways for organic fertilizers to do it. It increases the carbon stock in the soil, that's one. And two, it then sets the cycle that carbon gets released from soil. Like in the past, the carbon stored in soil only stayed for three to five years before being leaked as carbon dioxide. Now, by using organic fertilizers, carbon remains in the soil for 10, 20 years. In other parts of China, farmers are tackling carbon and methane emissions by practicing conservation agriculture in collaboration with Dr. Ratan Lal from Ohio State University. Conservation agriculture has three to four, maybe five components. One component is eliminate plowing, any mechanical seedbed preparation. Number two is leave all the crop residue and biomass on the surface of the soil as a mulch. Number three, adopt complex crop rotation, integrate trees with crops and livestock, and adopt also integrated plant nutrient management. So this complex process of managing soil and plant and environment to restore the health of soil is called conservation agriculture. This type of practice can be a game changer for our fight against human-caused climate change. And there are very good examples of this practice being adopted in the North China Plain regions. Several of my cooperating scientists from China Agriculture University and from other places have done this work. We can increase soil carbon stock by about one metric ton of carbon per hectare per year. At the same time, the inputs of fertilizer and input of irrigation water can be reduced because their use efficiency is improved and crop productivity is stabilized. Some people believe that the nutritional quality of the food produced is also better because soil health is improved. So if conservation agriculture is done properly, it can certainly sequester carbon dioxide. It can reduce emission of methane. Dr. Lal said in the U.S., about 30% of the farmers have adopted this practice. The challenge is getting the seeds through the crop residue and into the soil. To do this, farmers use a machine called seed drill. When the field is plowed, farmers can easily plant seeds. But if the farmers practice no-till, then the soil is more uneven, and planting the seeds mechanically becomes difficult and requires different equipment. So the, it requires a special type of seed drill. And in the U.S., a special type of seed drill with six row or eight row may cost as much as $100,000. So sometimes equipment required to grow crops with this method require additional investment. So farmers may have to be encouraged, given incentive, motivation. And this is what we call payment for ecosystem services. Conservation agriculture encourages leaving crop residue to nurture the soil. In Asia, especially in China, Southeast Asian countries, crop residue is used for many other purposes. It's used as a fodder for cattle. Sometimes it's used to, for industrial purposes. Sometimes it's used for household, other reasons. So it has many other benefits. So if the farmers are to encourage to leave the residue and not burn it and not take it away and not feed it to the cattle, 
then they have to be motivated. That means compensating them for additional expenses that may be required to adopt this practice. The U.S. authorities have also launched a program called Environmental Quality Incentives Program. The Natural Resources Conservation Service offers farmers technical and financial help in developing conservation practices in their fields. Summer last year, the Biden administration signed a landmark bill called the Inflation Reduction Act, and that act allocated about three hundred and seventy billion dollars to cutting greenhouse gas emissions. This bill is the biggest step forward on climate ever, ever, and it's going to allow it's going to allow us to boldly take additional steps toward meeting all of my climate goals. The Inflation Reduction Act includes funding targeting farming and nature restoration projects, like $20 billion on climate-smart agricultural practices. Helping farmers store more carbon in the soil is part of the plan here. Now that there seems to be policies and funding on both sides of the Pacific from these two food superpowers. To reduce greenhouse gas emissions on farms, maybe more collaboration is in the air, and the post-COVID world could encourage more personal scientific exchange. Hopefully, the U.S. and China won't let political tensions get in the way of joint climate change research. And experts told us that collaboration between the U.S. and China. The two countries with the largest greenhouse gas emissions from agricultural production is critical for us to get to net zero. I still want to emphasize, like U.S.-China collaborate on in the agriculture sector is very important, and even the central part for the collaboration in the climate change, because that actually not just address climate change, actually can improve food security, so contribute to the fight to global hunger. Because at the end of the day, to win the battle with climate change, we do not want to fight with nature. We want to be friend with nature, so that nature can help us. In our next episode, we'll turn to U.S.-China collaborative efforts to reduce rice production emissions. We'll talk to a fascinating Chinese scientist. That recently won a prized International Science Award for innovative rice cultivation alongside U.S. collaborators, a U.S. rice farmer about the importance of the China export market, and why maintaining profits while reducing emissions isn't easy. All that while breaking down and learning a bit more about the new science of why rice production creates so many challenges to battling climate change. So stay tuned. Hey, Sustainable Asia listeners! I'm Marcy Trent Long, and I'm the executive producer of Sustainable Asia. Charmaine Lee and I are the hosts and producers of this episode. Zach Chiang, Sam Li Xiaoyu, and Laura Nor Walton are the associate producers, and Cole Chiu composed the music. A big thank you to our guests, Dr. Ratan Lal of the Ohio State University, Kevin Mo of IGDP in China, Jessica De Ambrosio with the Nature Conservancy, and Dr. Fan Mingsheng from the China Agricultural University. 
This podcast series is part of a Wilson Center China Environment Forum and Ohio State University initiative called Cultivating U.S. and Chinese Climate Leadership on Food and Agriculture. As a partner in this project, our team has loved digging into ag and climate issues with the support of the China Environment Forum at the Wilson Center. Check out Wilson Center's website links in our show notes to read their excellent research on reducing greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S. and China from agriculture. Also, sign up for their highly informative webinar series on the many environmental issues impacting the two countries. It's a great opportunity to join the discussion to reduce the environmental footprint in the U.S. and China. Alexander Mobison created the intro-outro music made from repurposed and recovered waste items. Thanks for listening. On to the next episode. <laughs>